trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. Man, here we go, October. It's underway and, man, fall fell over the weekend. So I gotta, I gotta get poetic for just a moment here. I'm sorry, this is gonna feel like a flex, but I'm just, I am so grateful to live in a rural area, particularly one where agriculture is the norm. And it's been fun watching the, the fields right across the street from my house. We're talking hundreds and hundreds of acres of corn being grown for, I, I presume it's for, for forage, for, for silage, I should say. They, they will, uh, you know, it's not harvesting years of corn and peeling them and boiling them up, you know. It's, uh, it's chopped up into silage for cattle. There's tons and tons of dairies where I live. And anyway just a massive amount of corn growing and it's kind of cool to see it get tall and so tall in fact it actually kind of blocks the scenery it limits our view but when they come to harvest that stuff it is just amazing the coordination between the actual harvesters and the trucks that have to come by and it's it's astonishing how quickly it's like watching this huge lawn being mowed and it's astonishing how fast they can fill up one of those trucks and these are huge farm trucks you've got I don't know how many, probably a dozen or more trucks, all just running as fast as they can. They fill them up, they go and dump them, and, and there's just a constant steady stream. It's like they, they never can stop. And I watched them take this field down and thought, that was really cool. Little did I know, though, they were trying to beat the rain. And it started raining over the weekend and rained for probably pretty close to 12 hours straight. Not, you know, heavy downpour, but enough that field was just standing water and mud, and I just can't imagine how tough that would have been, you know, to operate in had they been trying to, to harvest that corn with it, with it that wet. Nonetheless, the sights, the sounds, the smells of fall are upon us, and I'm very, very grateful for that. It's absolutely my favorite time of the year. It's also the time of year where I get the most angsty about, oh, but it only lasts for a couple of days, it seems like. And it's just how I am. I just, I love it so much, but I'm also just wistful because it comes and goes so quickly. Okay, having unburdened myself, welcome to the show. This is a program not so much about, okay, here's what I think about everything, and you get to sit and listen to every word I say. This is a program that is designed with, with the, the whole purpose behind it is to help promote clear and independent thinking. I'm trying to encourage and trying to share survival skills for independent thinkers and people who want to take ownership of their worldview and as far as they can take ownership for their own life. And, and I don't want to sound like I'm just being a contrarian when I say this, but because of this, I don't allow myself to get too wrapped up in, well, who do you think is going to win the election just over a year from now? <gasps> you know, I don't care. It's not that it doesn't matter, but it just matters a lot less then we pretend it does. I hope that makes sense. What I'm getting at is I'm, I'm all about solving problems at the lowest possible level. More often than not, that's going to mean we solve those problems locally wherever we can. The problem that we see now, though, is even a lot of municipalities, they love that federal money. Well, you know, the Fed said they'd give us this much money if we just, you know, play ball, meaning that the money always comes with strings attached. 
So, yeah, even solving problems on the lowest level isn't always easy because, you know, there's just that that easy money available. And with that easy money comes a subsequent loss of autonomy. So I want to take a moment here and share Paul Rosenberg's latest. This is kind of an updated essay from one he did a while back on, on activism. I love his take on activism, though. In fact, I love Paul's take on most things. But he says, the problem with activism... Now, he's quick to point out, look, there are people called activists who he says, I respect and I support, but I divide these people from the activism in my title because these people act, encourage, and teach directly, not through third parties. And this distinction will become clearer to you as as we proceed. So he starts by asking, what happened to the cool kids? Once upon a time, there were courageous computer types who defied mighty Western governments and worked around them to deliver usable cryptography to the world. It took skill, it took intelligence, most of all, it took courage. But these people took the risks and did it, and he says, I think they deserve credit for it. However, more than a few of those people descended from the ranks of the righteously disobedient to the level of mere activists. They spend their efforts these days encouraging legislation, engaging in dialogue, and promoting causes. In other words, they went from doing things themselves to begging overlords to do them And that's a big difference. So consider the two models that he's identified here. Number one, the first model required skill, intelligence, and courage. It required people to act against the will of the dominator. Number two, the new model features activists who imagine they're smart, smart enough anyway, to manipulate the dominator into doing the right thing. By the way, that perfectly describes the uh, Anti-Defamation League, the SPLC, among others. They're trying to manipulate the dominator, meaning the state, into doing the right thing. Punish anybody to the right of Chairman Mao. And here's how you can can easily tell the difference between these two different models of activism. Model one removes power from the overlord and transfers it to individuals. Model two actually enhances the power of the overlord, and it's only the overlord who's held as a proper actor. And Paul says, sadly, model number two has become the primary model of activism in the Western world. So success by this model ends with the ruler and only the ruler acting. This is one of the reasons why I de-emphasize politics as much as I do on this program is because if, if you're just trying to reform the government, but make sure it's still in charge of everything in our lives, you're kind of defeating the purpose. It needs to get out of the way. And it needs to be very strictly limited to very few clearly defined things, almost like they were written down somewhere in a, what's it called, a a constitution of some sort. As opposed to, well, well, maybe we should ask it to fix this as well. Anyway, Paul shares some specific reasons that he's opposed to this model where only the ruler can act. Number one, he says it enhances the existing order. He says, as I've written before, mankind is now living with space-age technology and Bronze Age rulership, a horribly retrograde mode of organization. And he says, we desperately need to get past it. Enthroning rulership is enthroning rulership as the only legitimate actor is devolutionary. It drags us away from the future. Number two, he says it evades courage and risk. Now, no one likes risk, but in a world controlled by Bronze Age dominators... Progress requires it. But under the modern activism model, almost no courage is required. The activist is the partner to power, right? They're currying favor with it. 
Activism that relies on the existing order is no threat to the existing order. Ooh, that's a powerful, powerful line. Number four, it corrupts the activists. Activists of that second model tend to have problems with arrogance. Now, he says that's just his observation. Yours may differ. But he says the entire model rests on the ability of the activist to outsmart other people. The model number two activist outsmarts ruling factions to get his or her way. He or she works social media to get groups of people to repeat his or her slogans. He convinces masses to show up at his events. He gets TV cameras to where they need to be, when they need to be. Then crafts sound bites that play well on the news. In other words, he outsmarts everyone. The modern activist uses people as tools, especially as social media thro- the social media throngs. rather. Thus, he or she gains a very real type of power. And as we should all know by now, power corrupts. The successful activist is a tool of his or her trade, must become famous, and fame corrupts at least as fast as more traditional types of power. By the way, I'm not trying to condemn anybody in particular, but people who are very upset and very concerned about Tim Ballard at this time, I think this may be one of the things that you're seeing play out here. Okay, I'm not, I'm not trying to start a whole new fight, but I'm just saying... The more famous people become, the more recognition they receive, the more likely they are to start believing their own press releases. It it happens. Okay, number four, it keeps the masses firmly within the status quo. Think about this. People seeing the great, well-publicized successes of the Model 2 activists never see any reason to move on their own. That brilliant activist gets things done by outsmarting power. That being so, their most sensible action is to simply support a successful, the, the most sensible actions to support a successful activist. So why should the concerned young person launch out on their own, seeing that famous gurus are already talking to the prime ministers, filing class action lawsuits, or have thousands of online admirers? So he or she finds a role inside the status quo that the activist supposedly is changing. Something feels naggingly wrong about it, but hey, who am I to challenge the great guru? And because of this, the status quo continues forward apace. Now, there's more to this commentary. I'm going to come back to it here in just a few moments. But does Paul Rosenberg not nail this thing? Absolutely. The activism that we see today is all about gaming the system, fooling the people in power, into doing what the activist wants. It's not about taking their power back. It's not about doing things on our own. That's why it's deficient. I've got a link in my show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Again, just an amazing article here from Paul Rosenberg about why he is opposed to activism, or at least a certain type of activism that doesn't really change anything, but just safely operates within the system by cooperating with the dominator, meaning those in power. And he, he makes such a great distinction here. By the way, he gives some reasons why he cannot support the activists that he's talking about here. Reason number five is this kind of activism creates and enhances a victim-based culture. Nothing gets better. Nothing results, nothing better, modern, better results in the modern age than portraying yourself 
Let's try that again. Nothing gets better results in the modern age than portraying yourself as a victim or portraying one's cause as in the service of victims. Right? People wear their victimhood like a crown. So that's precisely what the clever activists do. Worse, the activist needs his or her crowds to appear as victims and subtly encourages them to see themselves that way. Sure enough, the thousands do see themselves as victims, empowering the activist to champion their cause. Here's why that's a bad idea. Paul says, please note that once we slide our minds into the role of victim, we give up agency over our lives. From then on, we become dependents rather than confident actors on our own behalf. In other words, we hand our power to the activist and become dependent on him or her. Worse, we become morally dependent upon the activist because the very role of victim requires a moral judgment. The guru activist then becomes a major force in our moral universe. This amounts to a loss of personal power that's both subtle and pernicious. And number six, it helps the victims by using other people's money. There's a familiar refrain, convincing the state to do something. That's the easy way out. Rather than standing up and getting busy and God forbid, spending our own money, we empower the state to act. But the truth, of course, is the state does nothing without first stealing money. This model permits us to feel righteous at no expense. It's false and wasteful, of course, but the illusion's easy to maintain, at least in modern climate, in the modern climate where few things are called by their true names. So, he says, please engage in Model 1 activism. Use your own mind, your own cleverness, your own effort. Bless the world. And once you do, he says, give yourself credit. You'll have earned it. You'll have gained a legitimate reason to feel righteous. Enjoy it. I just absolutely love this guy's take on stuff. (laughs) Paul Rosenberg has really got a solid slant. And this take on activism, I think, may be one of his best, especially because he so clearly defines the problem around us. It's that type two activism where they work with the dominator. That's the the problem. Manipulating the dominator into doing the right thing. That's what we see happening all around us. By the way, it's in today's show notes for October 2nd, 2023, the Brian I hope you'll check it out. Now, speaking of taking action for ourselves, I'm going to go ahead and venture into the uncomfortable territory of, uh, what's it called? Oh, yes. Solutions are scary. This is the second in an installment by Brandon Smith from alt-market.us. You remember the first one he talked about? It's time to bring back citizen militias. And by the way, that is scary. Had a great conversation with some folks, actually, with uh, with a former uh, military commander that I interviewed on the radio here locally. Um super, super nice guy. But I shared that commentary on the radio. And when this guy came in, he was, uh, you could see he was shaken, not by the prospect of, oh, the militia is such a terrible threat, but just because it, it raises the prospect of, does that mean that someday we may have to stand up and actually use organized violence at the, at the citizen militia level to resist tyrannical government? Now he had fought in Iraq. He was a door kicker in Iraq. And he said, I've seen what it's like. I've seen what warlike situations or what wartime situations are like. And it's uglier than anybody can imagine. By the way, I agree with him. I believe what he's saying. But it was, you could see, he was shaken by just, you know, considering the prospect. 
it shakes me up too because I don't want to, I don't want to contemplate something like that because it's it's so so painful to consider. And at the same time, <clears throat> I believe the founding generation wisely gave us that trump card. Sorry, but that's what it is. In the event that those in power ignored the limits on their power and got out of control. And this is why I think you'll see there's such a, a concerted effort right now. We've got to disarm the American people. By the way, if Gavin Newsom does turn out to be the Democratic nominee next year, I can't see Joe Biden making it for another another campaign. I'm sorry. His his brain is is pretty much gone. But I could see somebody like Gavin Newsom being fronted as, you know, oh, look, he's young, he's good-looking. Why, look at the energy he brings. He's also extremely authoritarian. Someone said this this will be America's Stalin if he's elected. And I believe it, because he has that charisma. You may think of Stalin as just an old meanie, but part of what brought him to power was the fact that he had so much charisma. And then he became a meanie. So let's talk about Brandon Smith's article from his Solutions Are Scary. This one is Economic Rebellion in Black Markets. I'm already smiling just because this this one is, this is very solid. And again, it comes down to not gaming the system into doing what we want, but rather starting our own, building something parallel, and making that work. Something where you actually have skin in the game. Brandon Smith says, in the first article in this series, I examined the issue of militias and the public taking its security into its own hands. Now, he he says, I did this quite frankly because without security, you have nothing. There are millions of people out there, each with their own pet concerns, and many of these people think their primary issue is the secret silver bullet solution to everything. But he says it's not. Security comes first, everything else is secondary. That said, the next, the most important factor next to physical safety is economic preparedness. He says, if you were to examine the entire spectrum of globalist policies and programs from the U.S. to Europe to Asia, including climate controls and carbon credits, central bank digital currencies, cashless societies, vaccine passports, biometrics, agricultural controls, the Great Reset, the Fourth Industrial Revolution, AI monitoring of transactions, etc., you'll come to the same conclusion that I have, which he says almost everything they do revolves around locking down and managing trade and micromanaging trade and access to resources. Not just the international trade and import-export of resources, but all trade including the average person's grocery purchases and private barter. If they, get their, if they get their way, he says, you won't even be allowed to grow a garden in your backyard. You think I'm exaggerating? Well, he says, look at what happened during the attempted COVID lockdowns. There were leftist state governments trying to deny people access to jobs and food without vaccination status. And at least one, Michigan, tried to stop people from buying garden seeds. In many places, including Hawaii, They tried to arrest people simply for being outside in parks and beaches. Now, keep in mind, it is nearly impossible to contract or transmit a virus in the outdoors where open air and sunlight actively kill diseases. Yet the science was completely ignored in order to control people's behavioral patterns, social interactions, and economic participation. So Brandon Smith says, I have long argued that one of the primary reasons of the, the COVID lockdowns was to acclimate the public to the idea of rationing, 
the government takeover of production and consumption as a means to bottleneck trade. Rationing erases any last vestiges of the free market and turns the buying of necessities into a privilege instead of a right. Plus, he says it was also an attempt to demonize the concept of prepping as a form of hoarding. In other words, if you planned ahead and bought food and medical supplies years in advance, you were a selfish person withholding valuable goods from others in dire need. In fact, he says, I think the chaotic flurry of activity during 2020 and 2021 had a lot of people confused. Many have forgotten how incredibly close we came to full authoritarianism, including total economic tyranny. We're going to come back to Brandon's commentary in just a few moments. Again, you can check out a copy of this with the link I provide in today's show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back. If you have found the courage to stick it out to segment three of the show, yeah, I think you're going to make it. You're going to do just fine. Sharing Brandon, <clears throat> excuse me, Brandon Smith's article about economic rebellion and black markets. This is part two of his Solutions Are Scary sit, uh, uh, series that he's publishing on how to take back control of our lives. And I, I appreciate his boldness. I think he's right on, on target here. <clears throat> now, he says the purpose of economic controls is obvious. If you control people's access to supplies and income, they're far less likely to rebel against you when you turn the screws and take their freedoms. This has been the strategy of every communist socialist regime around the world since the 20th century. And it was a mainstay of feudal empires in the Middle Ages. The process of trade controls is at the core of the agenda for our modern day oligarchy. Ruling at the barrel of a gun is not viable as a strategy today, at least for now, so they're opting to use indirect methods to gain compliance until the population can be completely disarmed. Now, this trend forces the liberty-minded to adopt alternative economic systems. If we do not, then he says we will not be able to maintain our ability to fight back against authoritarianism. If you can't feed yourself, you can't fight. But what do these alternative systems look like? Okay, this is where you're going to have to buckle up and, you know, find a little courage. Essentially, he says they would be black markets. Study the tactics of gun runners and drug dealers of the past several decades, and the alternative economy of the future will probably look similar, though on a much larger scale. Most of what we do will eventually be treated as illicit, unless it is specifically sanctioned by local or state governments. But, he says, this will not stop centralized authority from doing everything they can to shut down private production and trade. Then there's the issue of economic collapse, which we are already beginning to experience in the form of a stagflation crisis. And Brandon says, trust me, it's going to get a lot worse in the next couple of years, so establishing alternatives today should be our top priority. If your currency is consistently losing value, prices are rising, and you have to work harder every day to attain the same amount of resources, then the end game will be slavery, and servitude unless you can walk away from the broken economy. You see how that's the key? So here are the steps that would be necessary to defeat the socialization of trade, and all of them will require a certain level of risk. Again, I love Brandon Smith for saying, this is not going to be carefree. Oh, look, just take this magic pill and everything's going to magically be fixed. Of course there is risk involved. 
But it wouldn't be freedom if, if that weren't the case. There, it wouldn't be authentic freedom. So he starts with localized resource production and taking back the commons. Large groups of people in counties and states will have to organize the extraction of vital resources from areas typically managed by the federal government. Meaning, if your state produces a lot of oil or timber or coal or copper or steel, etc., then the production will have to focus on domestic markets rather than foreign export. Americans at either the state or county level will need to ignore federal restrictions on resource management that favor large corporations and create a supply chain for domestic use only. The more groups at the county and state level that do this, the larger the resource network will become and the harder it will be for federal or global interests to shut down wider production of goods and services. If you want to bring back an economy of independent producers and tradesmen in the U.S., it all starts with localized resources and the end of access for government-protected corporations that siphon wealth out of communities. Number two, he talks about barter markets. Now, Brandon says, I've been writing about the value of barter markets as a means of rebellion for almost 20 years now. And he says, I continue to believe that this tactic is an incredible tool for defeating economic tyranny. The bottom line is this. Barter markets need producers in order to stay viable. They need people who make things, grow things, fix things, and teach things. It can't just be about trading goods you already have on hand. You have to be willing to add value to the market by creating useful items and services. Barter markets can operate on a small neighborhood scale up to a county level, while states can trade with each other to stockpile vital commodities. All of this, though, would have to act as a stopgap because barter relies on an erratic value system. Any item or service is going to be worth something different to each person, making standardized prices difficult. So, in the end, some kind of universal trade mechanism or currency will have to be introduced that functions outside the falling dollar system and separate from CBDCs. Which brings us to an alternative currency system. Now, he says, yes, this concept has been discussed at great length from every angle within the liberty movement for years. Most of the talk has revolved around cryptocurrencies, which he says, I view that as a distraction from legitimate solutions. Almost no one you run into on a daily basis owns or trades crypto. Why would they when it's a currency based in virtual reality? People want the option to hold their buying power in their hand, to know that their wealth is tangible. This means a convertible currency mechanism, either a cryptocurrency or physical note that's backed by a commodity or basket of commodities that are held in escrow safely and securely. These commodities would have to have storage capacity and be relatively portable, gold, silver, copper, wheat, oil, rice, and so on. A basket averaging out relative values can be used to determine buying power of the new currency. Now, of course, such a system would have to be developed at the state level. And he says it's unlikely that cities and counties will have the resources to create such a system of their own, though localized script might become common in smaller towns if they're highly organized. But he says this is something that has to be pursued now before an economic collapse and dollar collapse play out. Next comes a reset of the tax and corporate model. All right, I can see people sitting forward going, oh, tell me more. Well, if taxes are to exist at all, Brandon Smith says they should be limited to the local level and the benefits of those taxes should be readily visible to the local population. Federal income taxes should not exist. And he reminds us they didn't exist permanently until the formation of the Federal Reserve Bank from 1913 to 1916. 
The only, they only serve to feed the authoritarian apparatus and grow gov- government ever larger. Federal corporation, federal operations, rather, if they are to exist at all, should be funded through tariffs on foreign goods, as was the practice in the U.S. decades ago. Corporate charters should no longer exist. Corporations are a socialist concept, given protection and special treatment from governments. They should be replaced by legal partnerships and no longer treated as too big to fail. Also, when business management knowingly commits a crime, they should be prosecuted, not protected by limited liability. The tax model and corporate model are both massive drains on the modern economic system. They disrupt the buying power and production power of the average citizen, thereby keeping entrepreneurs from advancing due to rigged competition and dragging down the consumer with steady wealth depletion. He says, if we're going to save the economy or build any kind of functional alternative, these two millstones will have to be removed from around our collective necks. Finally, he talks about how decentralization prevents genocide. The greater issue at hand is what happens when governments and oligarchies are allowed to wield centralized authority over resources. Now, Brandon says usually the end result is the exploitation of those resources as a weapon to punish part of the population or all of the population until they submit. Often genocide is treated as a viable option. Look at the communist-engineered famines in Soviet Russia or Maoist China. One can see the same elements forming today in the West But the difference is that we have historic reference and we have the means to prevent it from happening again. He says, make no mistake, there are psychopaths in leadership today that have no qualms whatsoever in using food or economic access as leverage against the people that oppose them. We saw them try it during COVID. They're going to keep trying under the guise of climate change. But Brandon Smith says, really, these are only mechanisms for garnering popular acceptance of socialized resources. We're all in this together, right? He says, no, we're not. And the notion of sacrifice for the greater good is a farce created by parasites trying to convince the host that the bloodletting and the feeding is moral and necessary. So Brandon comes right out and says it. These parasites serve no purpose. The collectivists serve no purpose. There are numerous ways for the economy and society to function happily and successfully without them. And, of course, their centralized agenda. But he says to get rid of them, we first have to protect ourselves. And establishing a solid alternative trade framework is a major step towards eliminating the parasites forever. That's pretty bold. But I don't, I don't see a single, single thing in there, rather, that, uh, that strikes me as, no, I think he's off base. It all rings true. And again, I I would point you to look at where the problems are being solved, at least in the solutions that, that Brandon Smith is proffering here. They're being solved at the lowest possible level. Now, this means that you and I could conceivably come up with uh, some ways of our own to help start building that parallel economy. One of the concepts that I've heard over the years, and and it's going to look different for every person, is to essentially create a mini factory in your home. Now, this is going to be different for everybody, but what's something you could do, some craft you could create or some service or good that you could make that you could then market? Yeah, it's like a home-based business. I mean, it's going to look different from person to person, but I think if you can cross that threshold and make that work, you're on your way. This is The Brian Hyde Show.
This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. All right, I got three articles I want to touch on in the final segment of today's program. We're going to start with one from John Miltimore from the Foundation for Economic Education. Um, Again, like politics, I don't spend a whole lot of time focusing on personalities and celebrities and whatnot. But what's happening to comedian Russell Brand is very important in the sense that it shows what could happen to anybody who gets a little too much reach in questioning the narrative. And if you think, well, I don't have anything in common with somebody like Russell Brand, that's not true. The thing you have in common with him is that uh, you have freedom of speech that is very much under attack. John Miltimore, writing for the Foundation for Economic Education, says Russell Brand's demonetization, right, where he's being deplatformed, all these platforms are being pressurized, don't you allow him to make a dime off of his content. That's a bug of the emerging financial order. Not a bug, rather. It's a feature, not a bug. It's meant to be that way. And again, I'm just going to remind you, whatever you may think of of Russell Brand, he has not been convicted in a court of law of what uh, his accusers are, are saying. So take that with a grain of salt. Anybody can be accused. In the court of public opinion, the accusation is supposed to carry as much weight as a conviction. In the real world and in the legal world, There are things like due process. There are things like uh, convincing a jury, particularly in a criminal trial. They have to be convinced beyond a reasonable doubt that it actually did take place. I mean, for it to even go to the jury, probable cause has to exist. But it's only after conviction that someone can be punished. And look at what's happening. You know, Russell Brand is being deplatformed. I share a meme in today's show notes, and I hope you'll... Hope you'll uh, take the time to go, if, if only to see the, the meme. It's, it's the guy in the, the nice big puffy jacket where he's like, no, no, no. And, and the caption by it is Bill Clinton visiting Epstein Island 26 times. And there's another picture of the guy giving a thumbs up. Oh, yeah, definitely. And that is one girl's opinion of Russell Brand 17 years ago. Kind of interesting how the press handles that. So be skeptical, you know, right? Uh, if, if you're just going on what you've read in the news, it's a pretty safe bet that uh, everything you know has been told to you by somebody else. But in the meantime, look at the principles that are at stake. Okay, look beyond the personalities. You're seeing an informal social credit system that goes very well with you will own nothing and you will be happy and you will eat the bugs. And what's playing out with Russell Brand is more evidence that this system is on its way. All right, next one. This is a good one, too. I, I saw this. Uh, someone was making a comment. I didn't, I didn't save it just because, I, uh, frankly, I don't know who this person is. But it's, it's a professor, a commentator, talking about how, well, <clears throat> among the things that we can add to, uh, things that are racist behavior that white people engage in. By the way, this is things like getting up early, having a job being self-motivated, and so forth. Okay, you ready to add a new one to that list of racist things you've been doing you didn't even realize were racist? Reading aloud to your children. Instilling a can-do mindset in your kids. I know, I wish, you can't make this stuff up. But that is being treated as, well, that's, that's racist. That's that latent racism. You don't even know it's racism, but you're doing it. 
Okay, well, if that's if that's the case, I'm I'm thankful that my dear mother was such a racist individual to teach me to love learning at a very early age. And actually, I'm going to increase. I'm go, I'm going to uh, include rather in today's show notes a wonderful article <clears throat> from Annie Holmquist, countering propaganda one read aloud at a time. And the subtitle she put here, I think, describes perfectly why this is the right thing to do. It's time to fill our children's minds with the good true and beautiful by the way i gotta give annie high high props too for the the uh, image that she used on her Substack to illustrate this oh it's it's a lovely mom and dad and their daughter yes they're they're african-american so oh those racists reading aloud to their kids who could do such a thing just shows you how absolutely unhinged today's victim culture has become but annie's advice is look if you want to counteract the barrage of propaganda that's trying to fill your children's minds. If you want to fill their minds with truth, read aloud to them and with them and do it early and do it often. And she has a quote from Sarah McKenzie, the author of the Read Aloud Family, that explains why this works so well. Listen to this. When our kids read aloud, we give our kids practice living as heroes. Practice dealing with life and death situations. Practice living with virtue. Practice failing at virtue. As the characters in our favorite books struggle through hardship, we struggle with them. We consider whether we would be as brave, as bold, as fully human as our favorite heroes. And then we grasp on a more de- on a deeper, more meaningful level the story we are living ourselves as well as the kind of character we will become as that story unfolds. End quote. I agree. That's, that is beautiful stuff. Can you imagine? I mean, why why would someone want to... You shouldn't be reading to your children. That's really bad. Any of us who were read to as kids can attest to, that's where my love of reading came from. That's where my love of words and my love of language stems. But oh no, that's just all some racist plot. I sincerely hope the people who would try to advance that mindset can get the help that they need. I really sincerely mean that because it it sounds, this is the kind of thing you would do if you really wanted to bind a society down into basically a a North Korea type existence. I don't want to play that game. All right, final article. This is the article of the day. The COVID pandemic has been replaced with another kind of pandemic. And it's a pandemic of lockdown denialism. This is from Jeffrey Tucker from the Brownstone Institute. Marvelous stuff here. He says, there's an old expression, success has a thousand fathers, but failure is always an orphan. And it's a spin on Tacitus, who said, there, this is an unfair, unfair thing, rather, about war. Victory is claimed by all, failure to one alone. Jeffrey says, we can judge the results of the pandemic response then by the number of people who claim it as their own. And so far, the answer seems to be none. That's an excellent point. If it was such a success, then uh, why, why isn't somebody stepping up and saying, oh, yes, yes, that was all my idea. Now, sadly, Trump is doing that in regards to the vaccine, which I don't think he, he quite, I, maybe it's just his ego. He, he can't quite uh, understand. That did not play as well as, as he thinks. But the point here that Jeffrey Tucker's making is these days, if you listen to the rhetoric, you would think that absolutely no one forced anyone to do anything, not even take the jab. There were no mask mandates. No one was ever locked down. There were some mistakes, sure, but those came only from doing the best we could with the knowledge we had. 
But other than make well-considered recommendations, they didn't force anyone to do anything. It's called gaslighting. And that's exactly what is being done. Even from 2021, the media routinely referred to the pandemic and not the pandemic policies as responsible for learning losses, depression, business failures, poor economic conditions. And that's been deliberate. It's designed to normalize lockdowns as if they're just something one does to deal with infectious disease, even though lockdowns have no precedent on that scale in the West. And he says, more recently, this denialism has taken a strange turn. Now the people who actually did pull the trigger on the loss of liberty are routinely refusing to admit that they did anything. We've heard Donald Trump make this claim for the good part of a year. Mr. I left it to the states has yet to be publicly confronted with his decisions from March 10th of 2020 and throughout the rest of his presidency. Interviewers don't press him on the subject for fear of having access cut off later. Yet the record is very, very clear. Anthony Fauci has joined in, claiming he never recommended the lockdowns at all. But the pandemic of lockdown denialism has gotten worse to the point that the head of Health and Human Services plus the head of Occupational Safety and Health Commission are doing the same thing, even though the Supreme Court actually ruled against their edicts. I know, if that doesn't make your blood pressure tick up just a point or two, come on. What a difference time and events make. And Jeffrey Tucker walks through. He has the receipts here that will show you where they're lying about this. Trying to explain, we didn't do anything. No, everybody did everything they did voluntarily. It gives new meaning to the word gaslighting, says Jeffrey Tucker. Indeed, it's enough to drive one crazy. We encounter it everywhere, even in the second Republican debate, where not one question was about the lockdowns, much less the surveillance, censorship, vaccine mandates, or the failures of the shot. Here we have the greatest failure of government in my lifetime or any living lifetime. And we don't have official institutions out there even willing to talk about it. And of course, the political media or the major media is tacitly conspiring with the political establishment, the corporate sector and the administrative state to pretend like that fiasco was completely normal and also entirely forgettable, not even worth naming. We did the best we could with the information we had, so stop complaining. But he says it's not going to work. It's too close to living memory for this level of gaslighting to be effective. The more they engage in this kind of denialism, well, the more they discredit themselves. This is The Brian Hyde Show.